Hi there, I'm Mark Sweeney, and this is I'm the Gun, a comics podcast almost always to this point devoted to DC's The Legion of Superheroes, or Marvel's Shanna the She-Devil. Not the case this time out. This episode was originally slated to be the next Shanna showcase, which would uh, continue my indexing of Shanna's significant solo appearances, but I'm forced to stall a little bit in order to get a little context for the Jungle Queen's upcoming chronological appearance. We're talking the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I wanted to read the entirety of the series Khazar the Savage. Some important events in Shanna's life occur in the pages of that series, so I decided to give it a give it a shot, despite uh, Khazar not being one of my favorite characters. To my surprise, I'm finding it uh, a decent read, uh, but I'm not quite done yet, so the next episode of Shanna Showcase will it'll have to wait. I have been in a bit of a reflective mood of late, so in Shanna's place I've decided to start a, a new occasional thread for Around the Gun, and uh, I want to call it Famous First Edition, which will highlight some firsts in my comic collecting life, so perhaps <laughs> a more apt title would be Not So Famous First Edition. Um, but with this episode I wanted to go way back to the beginning, to the very beginning, and talk about the comic that I consider the first in my collection. Some I've been thinking about a lot, and uh, I'm always curious to see what uh, other collectors' first comics are. In my case, my first comic was Supervillain Classics number one, cover dated May 1983. And this issue boasts the origin of the Devourer of Worlds, Galactus. I was six years old when this came out, and at this time there were. There were a couple of comics I remember floating around the house uh, with an earlier cover date. I remember Conan number 110 and Thor number 295. Those are both cover dated May 1980. So I have to assume that they were purchased together by someone, I don't know, my father, maybe an uncle. I'm not even sure who they were purchased for. But uh, even now, some of the panels and those books are somewhat familiar to me, and I, I must have thumbed through them as the tattered remains of these two comics bagged and filed away in boxes, taking up a little bit too much room in my son's closet, uh, attests to that. Uh, those comics, they didn't grab me, though, which, you know, maybe not so unsurprising, as, you know, I don't think Conan is suitable read for any three-year-old. Um... Another one that didn't grab my attention uh, with an earlier cover date than the Galactus origin was Green Lantern number 148. In that issue, Green Lantern fights a grotesque Quartian that really kind of creeped me out, I remember, so I didn't get too invested in that issue as, as a five-year-old, though I have had to replace that original tattered copy, which got plenty of rereads in the intervening years between the time comics began to really click with me and the time I realized how to actually care for the darn things. So those three issues I remember being in my life prior to obtaining Supervillain Classics number one, but I didn't really feel any ownership of them. Supervillain Classics was undoubtedly bought from me, and even though I really had no idea what was going on in this mostly Stan Lee-Jack Kirby collaboration, it blew my young mind. Turns out this issue was kind of an oddball comic, piecing together an origin of Galactus from bits of various issues of Thor and apparently of Fantastic Four, uh, but I don't have enough familiarity with that original material to see what panels were taken from what. The credit box for this issue says the story is by Stanley and Jack Kirby, and there's no division of labor between writing and plotting, etc. Um, 
It says it was inked by Vince Coletta and George Klein, lettered by John Morelli, colored or maybe recolored by Andy Yankis with quote-unquote supplemental material by Mark Grunewald, Ron Wilson, John Byrne, and Jack Abel. It's a real hodgepodge underneath a cover by Bob Layton. I've always been used to depictions of Galactus by the likes of Jack Kirby and John Byrne where the, the big guy seems larger than life, usually shown with relatively normal-sized people or superheroes, which provides some scale, showing how large Galactus is. I'll have to consult my Marvel trading cards for his exact height, but it's something like 29 feet, maybe? Uh, on this cover, Bob Layton draws a close-up of Galactus's face, a portrait from the shoulders up, and while it's an excellent drawing, for some reason here Galactus just looks kind of like a regular dude, you know, albeit with square pupils. Uh, you know, underneath the, the most distinctive headgear in comics, I gotta think. I don't know, kind of weird, but I'm sure this opinion is my own now. Back in 83, and I bet Galactus came across as pretty imposing to my six-year-old self, especially considering what lies within the pages of the book itself. Before I get to those pages, I just want to mention the logo, which is great. You know, it's totally burned into my subconscious. It's block lettering in white, you know, reading Galactus, the origin. The letters have a yellow bevel and orange size, you know, totally, totally of its time. It screams to me, 1983. So yeah, I want to I wanna go through this like I do with all my other issue recaps. The story here opens with the arrival of a, a flagship of Galactus, whose destination has been some corner of space where the, which the giant considers home. Inside, the big guy begins a, a monologue. He's also in a reflective mood, and his mind casts back to ancient days to, to a now-dead world Galactus calls Paradise. It's a planet called Ta, T-A-A, -A, uh, home to the most advanced civilization in the universe. Its population traveled in one of their many fantastic inventions, the Thought Spheres, giant bubbles that can not only fly through the air at great speed, but also can, they can travel to the depths of the ocean. A group of very aristocratic-looking people drops in on one scientist named Gallen. Gallen has some bad news for the assembled group. Uh, doing his best Jor-El impersonation, Gallen claims that the planet Ta, in fact, the whole universe, is doomed. He's traveled the cosmos and has seen a wave of universal decay which is now bound for Ta, one of the few remaining worlds in the universe. Even now, deadly radiation is killing, one by one, the various species of Ta. Despite what seems like a hopeless situation, Galen insists that the, the wonders of Ta must somehow survive, even if only embodied in one survivor. Sounds kind of familiar. He travels through a city in his thought sphere, witnessing its population dying from radiation poisoning. He witnesses thought spheres shatter in mid-flight, uh, you know, occupants falling dead. In an act of defiance, Galen assembles a few survivors to crew a starship, saying, since we must die, let it be in flight. The starship launches and makes its way toward a huge, fiery singularity into which the fabric of the universe seems to be torn towards. The crew, ready to die in the blaze of glory, is engulfed by the singularity and bombarded by cosmic rays. This was my first taste of what I'd much later learn was called Kirby Crackle, the groups of round dots that are now kind of shorthand for vast cosmic energy. 
But back then, it, it didn't need a name. Visually, it told me all I needed to know about this scene. The crew was... They were being killed in a very cosmic way. Well, all the crew, but one. One crew member, I think we're meant to believe it's Gallon, though his body is pure Kirby Crackle, so it's hard to be... It's difficult to be 100% sure. He lives, though he feels a strange new force within his disintegrating body. A voice speaks to him on a great splash page, which I, th I think is John Byrne's contribution to the issue. I'm not sure exactly where it was taken from. It's, it's all Kirby Crackle, but the form within of Gallon, I guess. The pose and what you can make out of the face looks, it looks like, looks like Byrne. It was difficult to pick this out, and also the contribution of Ron Wilson, who's credited with artwork. He may have done the, the very first page, The Approach of Galactus' Ship. The uh, pretty much seamless transition of all the material that's kind of cobbled together here into a coherent story is a real credit to Mark Grunewald, who was the writer and editor, I think, of this issue, credited with uh, cobbling it together from, from all of its various sources. Anyway, the voice speaking to Galen claims to be the very sentience of this dying universe that's about to collapse under its own dying weight. The voice says it may not actually be the end for both of them, the bad news, good news, really. Yes, they are about to die, but merged, they could produce an heir, an inheritor. The result of this dying universe will be the birth of a new one, and into this new universe could be birthed a being like no other, a galactic ravager, Galactus. Gallon apparently gave silent consent, or if not, he was ignored completely, as we witness what we're led to believe is the Big Bang, you know, the Big Bang, the origin of our universe, which not only produces uh, our universe, but one remnant of the old, something that looks like the shadow of a rocket ship, which contains the embryonic Galactus, kind of sneaks through the Big Bang. And for billions of years, this shadow ship hurtles through the universe until it's finally pulled in by some planet's gravity. The ship's pass through the planet's atmosphere is witnessed by one of the race of Watchers, beings tasked with observing, only observing, the events of the universe. This particular Watcher obviously doesn't take his responsibilities too seriously, and sensing energy unlike any he's ever witnessed in the ship, uses telekinetic powers to, to bring it crashing to the surface. The Watcher moves to investigate and enters the ship, seeing its lone, comatose occupant and the energy coursing through its body, the energy that Watcher sees looks to me like it's uh, some kind of horrible skin disease. We only see the uh, hand. The Watcher is so curious, so intrigued by this being, that he sets up his own equipment to study the body which we see in whole, encased in a glass sphere and some other impressive looking equipment. Suddenly a hand smashes through the glass and the mystery being erupts into a huge fireball. The the Watcher stands in awe, and immediately he susses out the, the nature of the infant Galactus. Here we have a being with the power to destroy a planet, whose hunger will be so great that the energy of a planet may not even be enough to sustain it. The Watcher ponders destroying the being now, before it's capable of harnessing its total force, but he picks this moment, this moment here, to adhere to his pledge of non-interference. Remember, he's the one that broke that pledge and brought Galactus to the, to the surface. The worlds will die at the hands of this creature. Fate, quote-unquote fate, the Watcher says, has decreed that Galactus must live. Well, fate and himself. Not sure I understand his logic, but uh, 
we wouldn't have all the great Galactus stories we do if not for this hypocritical waffler, so there you go. As Galactus erupts, the Watcher beats feet as his ship, Galactus's ship kind of takes off again right in, into space. Now aboard, Galactus does a little house cleaning, ejecting what I guess are still the present bodies after millions and millions of years of his, the bodies of his comrades from the old universe into a, an escape pod. And I wonder, I don't know, I wonder if they were ever seen again. You never know in comics. The hand of Galactus we see fires energy blasts, which creates his very, very distinct suit, which we're told here helps regulate his energies. The ship itself is then transformed. It kind of spins and spins into a funny-looking cube with a chimney, which served for hundreds of years as a kind of incubator for the still gestating Galactus. The incubator cube eventually falls into orbit around some poor planet called Archaeopia, whose inhabitants are mostly just content observing the strange new moon circling their world. Unfortunately, a wave of interstellar war passed through this part of the universe, and some race of super geniuses decided to take a pot shot at the incubator cube. This shot coincidentally occurred just as Galactus's gestation completes, and he emerges a giant, a giant form pushing apart the halves of the cube, and with a wave of his arm, he destroys the entire war fleet. But this expenditure of energy gives Galactus a case of the munchies, and the closest available meal is the planet he's orbiting, Archaeopia. A few of the forward-thinking Archaeopeans launch themselves away from their homeworld in a small fleet as Galactus destroys the planet and absorbs the energy. This is his first planetary victim. First of many to come. Galactus surveys the damage he wrought and realizes that his power can be used not only for destruction but for creation, and he engages in a sculpture project thousands of years in the making. Using the raw material of the ravaged Archaeopia to fashion his new home, the twisted tubular world art he calls Ta Tu. Galactus summarizes on the last page he rightly claims to be a unique being in the universe, and though he bears no malice toward the worlds he destroys, he does what he must to survive. Then he says something curious, that no matter how many civilizations he destroys, it is his destiny to one day give back to the universe infinitely more than he's taken. So speaks Galactus. Well, I think even to this point, I think the universe is still waiting. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure Galactus has something really special cooked up, something up his sleeve to give back, maybe some, some more giant world art sculptures. So this is a great story, and obviously it made a huge impression on me. Uh, I never really followed Galactus onto other stories he appeared in. I feel like much of what you need to know is told right here, though obviously his early appearances in Fantastic Four are essential. Even though a lot of what happened in this comic made no sense to me at such a young age, certain story elements prepared me for what I was to encounter as a comic reader going forward. The influential artwork of Jack Kirby, and the maybe sometimes overwrought but definitely dramatic scripting of Stan Lee. And the obvious parallel between the fates of Ta and Krypton. And that wave of universal decay that destroyed the old universe would 
paved the way in my mind for something like the, the wave of universe-killing antimatter that made its way through DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths, which was an even more influential comic of my youth, and kind of, kind of shaped my comic tastes even, even to this day. And like I said, I'm really curious about uh, other collectors' first issues and how they informed either their tastes or their collecting habits. What was your first issue? Let me know by leaving a comment on the blog, imthegun.blogspot.com, or emailing me at imthegun at gmail.com. I think that's going to do it for this episode. Please check out previous episodes of I'm the Gun either on the blog or on iTunes. I'll be back soon with more Shanna Showcase and Reboot Review, maybe some other goodies, so... Till then, don't eat too many planets! Mm-hmm.